Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. I hope you're doing well. Now, today, for today's episode, I am pleased to bring you a conversation I had with a friend of mine, John Woods. John is the training director for the School of Preachers Trust that exists to help in the development of preachers. John works with individuals and teams from different parts of the world and offers encouragement, insight and equipping for the great task of preaching. He has a PhD in preaching and over 40 years of pastoral experience and is a man of real depth of wisdom and insight. Now, regular listeners to the podcast may be familiar with a conference that I've been talking about over the past couple of months, the Dead Preachers Society. This is a two-day conference that's looking at learning how to communicate the gospel in the modern age. Well, this conference is the brainchild of John Woods, who's on today's show. And John is going to be one of the speakers at the conference, sharing from, among other things, lessons from St. Augustine on preaching. Also speaking at the conference is Ben Virgo of Christian Heritage London and David Hilborn, the chair of the Evangelical Theological Advisory Group, and also hot off the press, a new speaker update. I am thrilled to announce that the amazing Natalie Williams, who's appeared on this podcast before back in September, if you haven't listened to that one, go and check that out. Superb conversation with her. Uh, She's also going to be at the conference speaking for us as well, which I'm thrilled about. Now, the conference is taking place in just a couple of weeks' time, depending, obviously, on when you're listening to this. But it's taking place on the 5th and 6th of July, 2022, in Eastbourne, UK. You can join us in person or digitally online via the live stream. To find out more or to get tickets, go to www.deadpreachers.com. Deadpreachers.com. Okay, well, all that's left now, I think, is for me to hand over to the wisdom and wit and insight of the mighty John Woods. I hope you enjoy the conversation. God bless. So, John, maybe as a a kind of introductory question, what is it about preaching that has appealed to you and made such a big impact on your life and study over the years? Well... I think that some people might suggest that I ought to have the the epitaph, he could talk, like <laughs> stone. Um, and I think, I, I think that this is one of the things that happened when I first became a Christian um, at 16. Um, I, I found someone to, to read about, think about, and talk about um, that captivated my imagination. Um, so, so I think I, I did probably waste most of my first 16 years although nothing entirely is wasted but then I finally discovered you know a cause you know a person a treasure um, and and I started talking about the treasure and w- when I started talking about Jesus the treasure people began to listen and people said well you know you you probably ought to do this more often and uh, and one thing led to another and you know I, I spent the rest of my life doing it. Mm. I mean, it is such a privilege, isn't it? Those of us who do get to preach in church. I've often, I think sometimes one of the ways that you know what your gift is, is because it's the thing that you think about and talk about and want to do the most. And and I remember saying to someone a few years ago, doesn't everybody obsess about preaching regularly and dream about preaching regularly? And they said, no, I don't want to do that in my life. I would run a mile from that. So this is obviously something that from an early age, you didn't just meet Jesus, you really wanted to talk about Jesus. 
um, standing in front of people, communicating? Is that something that came naturally to you? Well, no. I mean, one of my kind of um, most frightening experiences as a, as a boy was, was being in school where we had to do poetry recitation. Um, and it was terrifying. Um, the idea of standing up and reciting a poem from memory, it still, it still scars me. It gives me certain chills, actually. And I, I still ha have a sense that this is a really challenging thing to do every time. I don't feel as though I've got it sussed. I, 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 don't, I, I don't feel, you know, that, you know, this is a breeze. You know, I've done this thousands of times. So I think, you know, preaching is both um, amazingly delightful and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good way of putting it. Actually, well, how about this? Is a kind of just a, a general philosophical question, I guess. In an age like this, where we have just we're overwhelmed and inundated with various forms of communication, very powerful forms of communication in song and music and the internet, why spoken word um, monologue form on a Sunday morning? Well, that's a very good question, and and over over the kind of forty years that I've kind of done preaching, obviously there's been lots of trends. You know, the death of the sermon, etc., uh, etc. Et you know, and, and obviously the death of the sermon has been greatly exaggerated. Um, I mean, it's fascinating. There there are three um, particular areas where a person stands and speaks and engages a crowd, and they are politicians, preachers, and stand-up comedians. Um, and, and there's still um, a certain compelling nature of, of doing that, particularly the stand-up comedian. And I think probably preachers have a fair bit to learn from, from comedians. I think what I like about the stand-up comedian is their ability to connect with the people that they're talking to, speak in universal terms um, that everybody can recognise and, and tap into the, the kind of mood of the room and the mood of the time. And of course, um, they, they carefully craft language, they use words well, and they make words count. I mean, I love, I love um, Milton Jones, the Christian um, comedian. Um, you know, he, he and Tim Vine are great because they kind of, they use the one-liners, you know, the, the one-liner like that, that won the best joke at Edinburgh, um, been on the holiday of a lifetime, never again. <laughs> Um, which is kind of you know, a brilliant use of lines. And, and, uh, and Milton Jones um, in the little line um, about the church, you know, the church um, is like a helicopter. If you're not too careful, you get sucked into the rotors. And it's, it, it, it's, it's brilliant um, because it's, um, it, it's a very clever, pertinent use of language um, in a way that Jesus um, used language in, in the, in the proverb, in the parables rather, um, the, the very compelling images, stories that connect with people. So I think preachers can learn a lot from that. So clearly the medium of someone speaking with compassion and insight and connectedness to a group of people has compelling power. The danger of course is to assume that if you stand up and say a bunch of stuff, it's gonna be good. Uh, that doesn't necessarily follow but the, but the medium um clearly does still work in the 21st century and i think we need to also you know recognize that we're not talking in terms of you know language and communication alone we're talking about a certain dynamic where 
we're thinking about the fact that God has spoken. God has speak, spoken through his word. Um, his Holy Spirit has been given. And the, the one who has inspired that word has been given to uh, his people. He's been given to the preacher. And the Holy Spirit makes a connection so that sermons tend to be more than the sum of their parts because God shows up. Mm. What, what would your reflections be on length? Because you've got the TED Talk style of 70 minutes, but then in recent years as well, we've seen uh, people like Jordan Peterson speak for over an hour to packed auditoriums of people hungry to hear yeah. what are essentially very intellectually dense ideas. Um, so what, what are some of your reflections on you know, ideal sermon length? Well, I think, you know, John Stott, I write in the book, John Stott said the ideal sermon ought to sound as though it lasted for 20 minutes. And the point is that some five minute sermons can sound as though they last for 20 minutes. Um, and some one hour sermons can sound as though they're 20 minutes. We look at our watch and we think, you know, where did the time go? Um, I think also we need to think about, um, you know, like for like. So a Jordan Peterson lecture in a, in a lecture room with people who, who are quite invested in, in what he's saying and maybe, um, you know, high level um, intellectual themselves, is quite different from the average Sunday morning congregation, you know, where you'll have people of mixed intellectual ability. Um, you'll have people of um, you know, mixed mental capacity. You might have people who, who, um, who have learning difficulties You've got people who've been Christians for decades and, Christ and people who've been Christians for weeks. And, and I think there's a, something quite unique about a Sunday morning service. And when I've, we, I need to think about that when we're, when we're thinking about timing and style, choice of words, et cetera, et cetera. How did you, well, it's, it's a bigger question, but it just, uh, maybe you've thought, about, I'm sure you've thought about this before, but how did you maintain a level of faith, passion, conviction to get up and do it again and after week after week, you know, with no doubt mixed responses each time, some responses of silence, some response of criticism, some response of enthusiasm, some response of people falling asleep. How did you get, how did you, where did you find the, the drive to go for 40 years and keep going? Well, I think, I, I, I mean, it sounds a little bit kind of a, of a cliche, but I mean, Jesus is worth it. I think that's the point, isn't it? He is worth it. And I think, you know, reflecting on, on the scriptures, including the ministry of Jesus, not everybody was listening all of the time. In fact, I mean, one of his most famous parables is about a 25% return on, um, on, the, on the words that are spoken, which isn't, doesn't sound like a great investment. Um, but, but I think for me, I, 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 am a, I am an optimist rather than a pessimist, as to be said. Um, and, and I look at that, that par par parable and I think to myself, there's always going to be people who listen. You know, some people look at the parable and think there's always going to be people who don't listen. But, but my perspective is that if you're in a room and you're speaking to 100 people and one person is transformed, one person has a seed fall into their life that begins to work on them and, and develop life within them, um, that, that is job done in a sense. Um, and you read the prophets, you read the ministry of Jesus, and he, he was not he was not primarily counting heads. Um, he was counting, you know, the, the kind of impact. He wanted people to understand. He wanted people to be transformed. And that, that means, you know, in coming back to the parable of the sower, um, one of my friends said, you know, that we need to, as, as spreaders of the word, be wasteful in our, 
in our um, spread. You know, so the seed was flung around. And I think in preaching, you know, in a sense, you do you do fling the word out. Um, um, there needs to be some intentionality about it, but we need to leave the actual impact of it to God. You know, after all, we're not in control of, of what we're saying. It's a bit like a, throwing a message in the bottle into the ocean. You know, we're not in control of who's going to pick it up on a distant shore. God, God will, God will deal with that. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I mean, you said to me, "What?" Well, I think during the pandemic, I was feeling particularly discouraged and despondent one day, and said the similar question to you: "How do we keep going?" And you said, "I haven't got anything else. No. This is the message. This is the best message there is." And actually, yeah. I found that really helpful, that reminder that this is what we've got. This message will change lives. And my responsibility isn't to change lives, but to communicate the message faithfully. Mm. Do you have a, like a working definition of what you think the purpose of preaching is? Because, you know, people would say, oh, I don't remember sermons. And, uh, you know, I find them hard to, you know, I forget them, people, etc. And they can get discouraged by that. But then maybe remembering the sermon isn't the main point of the sermon. What would your reflections be on the purpose of preaching? Well, one preacher said that preaching is half an hour to raise the dead, <laughs> which I think is a nice definition. Um, and and I think that, you know, that that's the, the highest bar of it. I remember um, someone once talking, you know, about the fact that, um, you know, it's like pouring water through a garden sieve. You know, the, the, the sieve does not hold any of the water, but after um, pouring lots of water through it, it is clean. Um, and I think that um, we we must not underestimate the the benefit of of being under the ministry of God's word. I, I remember a very moving article that someone wrote, a friend who actually was my financial advisor. He contracted cancer in his fifties, and he he died um, soon afterwards. And he wrote he wrote a um, a piece talking about his his Christian experience and said about his pastor that he's probably heard, you know two to three thousand sermons that his pastor has preached over the years he doesn't remember every sermon um, that the pastor um, spoke but he knows that he's close to Jesus that he's grown in his faith and understanding as a result of hearing those sermons it's a little bit like kind of you know we may not remember every meal that's been prepared by our family over the years but we know whether we've been nourished or not um, so if we're not malnourished, we've benefited from that food. I asked Tim Keller about this once um, by email um, because I'd read something that he said about Jonathan Ed Edwards, the American preacher. And, and he said, you know, that um, the, the primary objective of preaching is not to inform people, but to touch them, to, 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 to make them feel the impact of, of, of what is being said. It's not information transfer primarily preaching. Preaching is about reaching the, the heart, mind and will. Great. I guess that heart, mind and will maps on quite nicely to one of the, the things that you, you draw out that Augustine quotes from Cicero about the preaching being something that should teach, delight and persuade. But uh, the book that you, you've written is amazing and it's just packed with so many ideas and quotes. What strikes me though as I read the book is that you you are very much like a 
I don't know if this is the right word, a connoisseur of culture. Like you draw from so many different sources. You seem to have a very hungry appetite. And actually one of the Bible verses that you quote regularly in the book is Jesus in Matthew 13 about the kingdom. And he says this, that therefore every teacher of the law who's become a disciple of the kingdom is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as as well as old. Um, can you comment on that as being is that being what preaching is displaying of treasures is that something a way that you think about it yeah i mean coming back to what i said earlier you know that you know i started to speak because i i perceived jesus as being my treasure and i think the thing with with things that are truly valuable is that they obviously become more valuable as time goes on and our appreciation of them tends to increase over time I suppose that's probably the difference isn't it between something which is um, really culturally valuable and something which is just a, a passing momentary thing so you know really enduring things they um, they just get better and better and of course you know we read in John's gospel about about you know Jesus's first miracle turning water into wine you have saved the best until last and I think that's a really encouraging kind of statement the, the indication that um, it can always be better. Um, you know, there is always more. Because I think, you know, the idea of having to speak on one book for 40 years, you kind of think, well, how do you do it? I mean, you're going to run out of things, you know, it's going to become dull, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it is such a rich resource, um, God's word, um, that you just never run out. And I think life is such a wonderful thing. I think I am interested in many things because, you know, the many things are all part of my father's world. So beautiful art, beautiful music, beautiful places are all things which have his fingerprints all over them. And, and therefore enjoying, enjoying our world, enjoying cultural um, pursuits is one of the ways of enjoying God. Um, and if, if in if in preaching you can kind of make a connection between the beautiful things that people see in the everyday and eternal truths that can prepare them for eternity i think that's not a bad thing to do as a preacher mm, that's very good yeah your book is full of just nuggets of insight to the, in the scriptures as well that are, that help me think about preaching but also just draw me to appreciate and love the book that I've been called to to teach from um, a little fact that I, I did really stood out to me as I was reading it recently. Um, this is a, it's a random fact, but I thought it was amazing, especially given that the past couple of podcasts we've released on on creation and design. That you said in in the Bible, next to God and people, um, trees are the most referenced living thing in Scripture. Just a fun little fact there, but I think that's brilliant. <laughs> God's created world that He speaks about. It is. It is um, uh, indeed. And and the final the final sermon, obviously in in the in the book in the sample sermon, is from Revelation twenty two, which which includes the image of a tree by a river, and of course you know there we are um, at the end of time in a new heaven and a new earth, you know w- with that echo of Eden, that echo of of a uh, of the places of trees and the and and the rivers um, that, that were there, um, and of course, you know, in Eden, the face of God, and in the, and in the new heavens and the new earth, the face of God. 
And of course, I'm look, I'm, as I look out of my, my window, I see trees. Um, you know, they are, they are a, an amazing uh, example of, of God's creativity, um, but also a remarkable image of, yeah, of, of spiritual life. And of course, we owe, we owe our salvation to someone who was nailed to a tree. Yeah, oh, it's, oh, it's rich. I'd love to see uh, hear a sermon series on all the trees in Scripture. You point out as well that the, the, the metaphors of trees and being rooted in Christ is also then mixed, this is our link here, then mixed with the metaphor of be, uh, building one another up, which is a, a reference to architecture and house. And your book takes the, the image of the house as a way of helping people to think through preparing the, the sermon, the preparing preaching, preparing the preachers, and it's, it's neatly divided into a few sections. You've got essentially building the house, the preparation phase, um, different zones within the house, that, and that, I guess the preparation of the, the message and the, the components of the message. Uh, the, then there's the third section of the book is what you call vital considerations, uh, which looks like communication skills and things to be aware of in delivering the message. And then the back section, which you just mentioned there, is a, a list of sample sermons, which is very helpful for anyone Basically, uh, if you're looking, well, we've got this occasion coming up. I need something to preach. But there's a great sermon on preaching for funerals as well, which, again, we've talked about this previously. Very helpful insights into funeral preaching for those who are in pastoral ministry and do that sort of thing. Um, but I thought it'd be it'd be fun to walk through some of the different phases of the book to get some of your reflections and comments on them. So the first phase or part of the book is the idea of building the house, and that is the preparation of the message, the structure of the message, but it's the preparation of the messenger, I should say, about us as a preacher. Um, just introduce us to this concept of the house and the, the sermon and then building a house, um, preparing a sermon and a preacher. Well, um, when I was 16, my, one of my first jobs was, um, was working on a building site. Um, and I remember that at um, lunchtimes I used to have the sandwiches and have a chat with people, but also read, read the Bible and, uh, and think about that. Um, and when writing the book, um, we were just in the process of moving house and we were having extensive rebuilding work done um, at the house here. Um, it was very interesting you know, in thinking about writing about the sermon as a house, I was I had, you know, wheelbarrows and um, cement mixers, piles of bricks and piles of sand and, and all of those things around me. You know, all creativity um, begins with chaos. And, and in, in, in sermon preparation, there is, there is at least one moment of chaos where, you know, you've got all these kind of ideas um, and, and potential openings and and uh, progressions of a sermon, ways of ending it, ways of illustrating it and so on. Um, and you're kind of working with all this chaos and then suddenly, you know, you find that, you know, this fits here and this fits there and this fits there and it kind of comes together and that the chaos becomes a creation. Um, now, I think, you know, obviously having a plan is, is quite a good thing, but I think the danger of having a kind of fixed plan for a sermon so that a sermon is always going to look exactly like this is that you kind of restrict your creativity you restrict your imagination and and everything you say begins to sound quite similar 
and people people think well you know i've kind of heard that before even if you're saying something different because you're community so, so for example if we're coming back to the house model if it's always a two-bedroom bungalow you know that's what you're going to get 52 weeks of the year um there's little room for the imagination and there's little room for surprise um because you just know you're going to walk in and there it is two bedrooms <laughs> a living room and a kitchen um that's it um so variety you need a bit of variety really be open to variety um so you so in that you're talking about the importance of a, a kind of a range of different architectural plans to, that will suit the occasion or the type of passage that you're preaching the the theme or the the series that you're in that sort of thing yeah i mean i think that you know classically since around about um the 17th century you know people have divided sermons into you know points and often three points is the kind of sacrosanct method now sometimes a biblical passage has one idea or two ideas or five ideas and and if you if you're kind of fixed on having a a three-bedroom house, a three-point sermon, um, you, you, you'll find that you'll not really communicate the, the movement of that biblical passage. You know, so I feel that a sermon ought to be governed and shaped by the, the shape of the, of the biblical message. So sometimes, you know, we might stand up and say, you know, um, I've just got one thing I want to say today. I'm going to look at it from a variety of angles, but this is basically it. Another time we might say, well, you know, actually we've got we've got a bit of walking to do today. We're going to look at a mansion. Um, we're going to try and walk through Psalm 119. <laughs> um, and of course, you have to walk fast if, yeah. if you're going to do that. Has to be said. And as I say in the book, you know, you need those little little points where 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 you you guide people. This is where you go next. This is where you go next. In order that people might might be able to follow you um yeah, yeah and I, find, I just found it very helpful as a metaphor for conceiving because you're right you when you whenever you prepare a sermon you're sat down at that initial stage going well i've got my bible text and now what and i don't know i've been doing it for a few years now i don't know what other preachers are like but almost every time i do that it's like i'm doing it for the first time going i don't know i don't know where i go from here and so actually having that kind of consideration metaphor conception in your head of Maybe just what kind of house am I going to build? What kind of a message is this going to be? I found that as a helpful picture. Actually, I'll just on that, you you mention in the book that there there are different approaches, like you just said there about one point um, sermons and mansions, etc. You just walk us through some of those. I found that very helpful for those who prepare messages. You've got like the big idea, the the three points, the the focus and function. Yes, um, I think that the, the idea of the big idea, which is kind of something which is. Uh, you know, suggested by Haddon Robinson in his book about expository preaching. It's a great thing, um, a great idea, because, you know, obviously sometimes sermons can be, you know, a little bit scattergun in their approach. You know, they, they try and do too many things. Uh, so sometimes to kind of say, well, you know, this is more or less the main thing that I want to communicate in this sermon. Um, and, and I think that that's, that, that will, is, is what will be useful in preaching on this particular passage. The danger of the big idea, and it's something that Tim Keller highlights, is that, you know, a lot of biblical passages have more than one idea. Um, and, and if there is more than one thing going on, you don't want to try and reduce it down to one necessarily. But I think, you know, 
what's being done by the big idea and, and, and having kind of three points is that is that you're kind of keeping some kind of control over what you're going to be talking about. Um, so, you know, sometimes people talk about, you know, don't let too many dogs out in the sermon. You know, um, you can chase after one. Maybe if there's a couple of you, you can chase after two, but you, you, re you release three dogs and it's really difficult. I mean, there's a, an African proverb, you can't chase two rabbits at the same time or, or you know, or you can't, uh, you know, you can't laugh and whistle at the same time, which is, it's kind of impossible. And, and I think recognizing, you know, what's possible in the sermon. I mean, the, the, the two that I particularly like uh, are, are those that are given by Tom Long, which is the idea of focus and function. Um, and focus is kind of saying, you know, what is this Bible passage saying? What is its primary message? Um, because words do say things. But then it asks a very important question. What is its function? And it's a reminder that words say things, but they also do things. Now, of course, um, this is kind of elaborated in J.L. Austin's speech act theory, um, kind of Oxford professor, um, and it's kind of you know, quite an academic kind of idea about, about language and so on. But, but the simple idea that we say things um, and they say something, we say things and they do something. So if I say to someone, you know, you've, you've been working here a long time, we've noticed your work, and quite frankly, you're not doing very well, you're fired. The words you're fired say something. They say the words you're fired, but they actually do something. They terminate that person's employment. And, and biblical words say things, and they also do things. They, they, they make commands. They, they, they give encouragements. They, they reveal something of God's character. They open up vistas of delight concerning who God is and what God has done. And, and I found that really helpful. So you're thinking about a biblical passage. What is this passage saying to me? And what's, what's it intended to do to me? And, and then in your sermon, you say, well, how can I communicate um, that focus and function in the sermon? Um, what one famous um, teacher of preaching, Fred Craddock, had a student come to him uh, with, a, with a sermon he prepared, and he said, will this sermon do? And Fred Craddock said to him, will it do what? And that's the point, you know, um, what do we want the message to accomplish? Um, and, and therefore asking that question of scripture is really important because as we see the function of scripture, we'll see what it might potentially do as we preach it. Mm, that's really helpful. Yeah, like if you're preaching a warning passage, the element of the, there ought to be elements in the sermon that actually warn people rather than just explain, here's what this passage is doing. And similar, you know, the emphasis on lamenting and talking about the importance of expressing our emotions to God. Well, it's one thing to teach on that. It's another thing to actually model that and, and allow people space in your sermon to do that. You also talk about, I think in the early part of the book, how sometimes people can go to Bible seminaries and universities and learn how to exegete a passage and we can end up producing preachers who can say accurate things but they don't embody what the message is actually doing and that's part of what you're saying I guess about being preachers who are students of life and live and express and embody life as human beings and don't just stand six feet above contradiction. Um, so you've got the architect's uh, intentions, this big idea or different ways that we can structure a message but one of the, the chapters I really liked as well was 
just as you approach the house that you've decided you're going to build in this sermon, pausing at the porch, you call it, and uh, and praying the whole of scripture, recognising that prayer undergirds and informs everything that we do. Uh, earlier, you shared about an email with Tim Keller that actually you quote in the book. Yeah, well, it, it was the question, you know, that um, if you could give preachers um, one piece of advice, um, what would it be? And he said, um, more prayer, much more prayer. Um, and and I think that it's, it's the recognition that it's not enough to say pray about your preaching, which which everyone will say when they talk about preaching. What Keller is trying to say, and what I'm trying to say in the book, is that prayer is the first thing you do about preaching. Um, I, I te- I've tended to recently use this image: the Word of God is God's breathed out word to us. All Scripture is God breathed, and when we read, we breathe in what God has breathed out. When we pray we breathe out to God a response to what he's breathed out to us. Um, and, and that kind of image of breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out um, is, is quite a helpful one, I think, because you're, you're interacting with God, you're interacting with the word, you're interacting with the congregation in a prayerful way so that this is, this is more than the construction of a talk. This is a, um, an embedding of um of, of a truth um a sense that that god has addressed you um so that you can address others um so you know when paul says to the colossians let the word of christ dwell in you richly i think that's what we're what i'm talking about here that the praying allows me to live in the text and allow the text to live in me so that it will by god's grace live in the hearer Mm, that's beautiful yeah there's this lovely line you put lord speak to me that i might speak isn't it we want to be those who sit with him and hear from him and actually yeah there's again another lovely little pithy quote you have where you say there's all the difference in the world between someone who just has to say something and someone who always has something to say and to be those who always have something to say means that we're always listening to god's word talking to god in prayer and we're able to speak for God which actually you know we don't often put it like this but it's a pretty intimidating borderline blasphemous thing isn't it to say I'm speaking to you from God we've got to be careful (laughs) well I mean I do quote you know the Heidelberg Catechism that says you know that um um preaching of the word of God is the word of God you know that, that that's a kind of you know a really daring kind of statement um but you know what else are we doing you know, I mean, I think I think the thing is, if we're not if we're not speaking from God, you know, we don't have any business doing this. Um, so I like I like the again something I learned from Tom Long, um, from his book Witness of Preaching. I like the term witness in this regard, because a witness, um, Long says, is someone who has seen something, and then says something. So we do pray. You know, open open my eyes that I might see wonderful things. From your law when we're reading scripture as preachers we are looking to see something that god has spoken to us in a fresh way so that we can speak it so for example i mean every christmas yeah for 40 years i read a sermon by francis schaeffer the uh, american apologist who worked in Libri in switzerland and it was a sermon on the the story of the, the shepherds who uh, who who went to to see jesus uh, and the, the story 
um, or rather the sermon has as the title, What Difference Has Looking Made? And it's a brilliant, a brilliant sermon uh, um, in which France, Francis Schaeffer imagines the impact upon these shepherds when they returned, because it, you know, Luke says in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, they returned praising God and so on. Um, um, how would that have changed their interactions with people? You know, the person who owed them money, the person who kind of got in their way, et cetera, et cetera. How were they transformed as a result of seeing Jesus? And I read that every, every Christmas, um, just as a kind of priming of the pump for my own Christmas preaching. And I then pray, Lord, help me to see something fresh in the Christmas story so that I can preach it with freshness. And he's answered the prayer every year. Oh, that is that is beautiful. Okay, so we've talked about uh, the kind of section one pre preparation of the message, the structure of the message, uh, but then you come to talk on talk about the actual message itself, the zones of a house, and how they relate to the zones of a message and the phases of a message, which again can just be a helpful framework for us as those who are creatively trying to craft a message each week to be able to just imagine okay I'm at the door I'm at the hallway I'm in the room I found that again just helpful and in the room what's on the wall those sorts of things are useful you talk about first of all the door so we paused at the porch to pray but now we enter the door uh, which uh, I guess is, is the introduction to the message when you say the purpose of the introduction isn't to get their attention but to not lose it <laughs> or to make a first impression on them talk to us about how important introductions and impressions and the doorway to the sermon is yes I was very impressed at, well I have always been impressed by Rob Parsons and his communication skills and he did a a really good tour called Heart of Communication, um, which has come out now as a book called Heart of Communication, which I, is a book I kind of heartily recommend, <laughs> as well as recommended by own, of course. Um, and he, 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 in the in the talks that um, that I heard before the book was published, used the statement, "Don't waste the beginning." Um, and I think that's a really helpful thing because I think there can be an awful lot of faffing about at the beginning of a sermon you know is my microphone working does my bum look big in this um you know um oh i see that i said oh see that someone's here um and and you can kind of have this um this sense in which you're not really beginning or the, or the beginning kind of seems to take a long long time now of course some preachers i mean for example don carson uh, he 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 never says anything in the way of a preliminary, preliminary statement you know, there's never a good morning, um, nice to see you here, thank you for your welcome. Because, I mean, his perspective, and of course, um, this is a personal thing, I'm not saying this is the right thing, um, but he stands up and he begins to address the congregation with the word that God has placed in his heart, because it is an important and urgent business. You know, you've come from the presence of God to speak his word to this people. Now, I think I think we need to be sensitive to our situation. And I think that, you know, we, we need to kind of recognize the relational, relational dynamics of a particular situation. And for some people, that kind of approach would, would appear to be weird and spooky. Um, but but um, I think that, you know, over the years, um, people have oscillated from extreme intimacy and extreme distance in that kind of beginning of a sermon. And I think the thing is, you know, what's the objective of the introduction? 
It's not to make you like me. That's not the point, which is often why people tell a joke at the beginning of a sermon. There's nothing wrong with telling a joke at the beginning of the sermon. But if it's only told to get people on your side, you kind of wonder whether it's actually serving you or serving the message. So I think, you know, you need to think about those things. So the first words we speak are, are really important. Um, I, I think we need to really make them count and we need to think them through. Probably the, the first words we speak and the last words we speak are some of the most important parts of the sermon, because I think the first words we speak will be the hook that, that um, draws people into the message. The last words we speak will be the help that allows people to take the message with them into the coming week. Mm. You talk about the idea of front-loading the sermon as well. Uh, what, what, what was that? Well, there are obviously, you know, more, there's more than one way of front-loading. I mean, some people front-load by telling you exactly what they're going to say. So like the African-American pastor who said, you know, first I tell them what I'm going to tell them, and then I tell them, and then I tell them what I told them. Um, you know, there's that kind of front-loading where you kind of just give people a list of what's what's going. But I always kind of feel it's a little bit like telling the punchline of a joke before you tell a joke. But front-loading in terms of maybe a pithy statement which, which grasps the essence of what you want to be saying. I, I, was, I was speaking on Hebrews 13, and I, I was having to speak on all of it two weeks ago, um, but I was particularly asked to talk about leadership. And... If I'd have only been speaking about leadership, I'd have started with this line that I used in the sermon, which is a line from Tom Wright, where he says, leading a church is like taking a cat for a walk. I mean, it's just a brilliant line. Obviously, it's amusing, but, but it does reflect on the, the complex dynamic between a leader and, and the led, um, which is the dynamic of those, those verses in Hebrews chapter 13, 6 and 7 and 17. And um, so you are front loading a statement which, which ra you know, raises the, um, the issue that leadership is, is, is actually you know, a complex thing and, and can be a problematic thing, both for leaders and those who are led. That, that front loads you know, a lot of kind of um, a lot of stuff in a line. Mm, yeah, and it's uh, that idea of piquing someone's interest, isn't it? I think, yeah. oh, I'm going to lean in. This, this person has something that I might be interested in. I like you quote um, Jesus's first recorded public message in Luke chapter four, where he reads from the scriptures um, and then kind of sits down, doesn't he? He says, yeah, today, yeah. this message has been fulfilled in your hearing and everyone's amazed at him. And you got four, four helpful things about why that was such a powerful introduction. He read the sermon and then his first word was, yes. today, mm. this scripture has been fulfilled. And you say it's brief, but it's also compelling. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time going around the runway, get, trying to get up into the sky. He says today. Uh, he said, number two, it's authoritative and it's rooted in the scriptures. Number three, it points us to Jesus, to himself, which is surely for us as Christians got to be the, the goal and destination of all of our preaching. And number four, it's, it's specific and situational. There's time and space. And it's just those, those practical insights into what you do in the book so helpfully is why people should buy it, John. Mm -hmm. What you do so helpfully is that you show these practical tools that you're talking about. You find them in the scriptures. Um, and, and actually, just in that illustration there from Jesus, you point out that when we preach, we're trying to bring a today word, mm -hmm. aren't we? We're trying to say today, now, this moment, there's a degree of urgency. Um, anything else on, on introductions that, that is in your mind? It's really important 
um, I, th- I don't know if I use this this story in it, but you know, Winston Churchill said about sandwiches that you know sandwiches, the bread ought to be thick enough to hold the contents so that they get to the mouth, but thin enough so that when you bite into it, you taste the filling. And I think that's a brilliant idea. And I think the introduction needs to be like that. It needs to be thick enough, robust enough to to carry the weight of what we want to say, but thin enough to actually bring us to the next stage of uh, of what we want to say in the message. Um, Some some introductions can be really long. I mean, I think it is a danger. I think a lot of preachers, sometimes it's nervousness or inexperience. They spend a lot of time on their introduction and their first step and they look at their watch and they say, oh, I've got eight minutes left and they rush the rest. You know, an introduction can overwhelm. So I think, you know, the doorway, you've got to get through it. But, you know, you need to make sure you don't hang around at it for too long. Yeah, you talk about um, a, a badly told or overly loaded story as like a big chunk of furniture blocking the doorway. I can't get in. It's a great, great piece of furniture, but I can't get past it to get into the sermon. <laughs> Indeed, indeed, indeed. That 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 chair needs to be inside one of the rooms, and you need to sit for a while, isn't it? Mm. Not stand outside, frustrated about it being stuck. That's right. Mm. So let's let's move past the doorway then, <laughs> and into the into the hallway and the rooms, and just talk to us a bit more then about what happens after the introduction and how you'd conceive of and encourage people to conceive of the the construction of a message. Well, I think this kind of idea of movement that that we're kind of you know for some stories. Um, so, for example, one of the stories they use in the book of the, the calming of the storm in Mark chapter four, there are obvious mood changes and situational changes in the story. And you see yourself standing on the shore, standing in the boat, standing in the storm, standing in the calm. And therefore, the, the rooms of the sermon would, would follow those 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 mood and situational changes you you place yourself at those different points in the story and you place yourself at those different places in the sermon and there is therefore that sense of movement and progression I think it's quite helpful um, because I think sometimes sermons have no sense of movement or if they are or if they are moving they're moving in circles and I think people people kind of realize that you know in fact you're just hovering around like an aeroplane waiting to land, you know, rather than purposely moving them towards the destination. Mm. And that's important that you don't spend too long loitering in the corridor. You know, the purpose of the hallway isn't to spend a lot of time in the hallway, but to get into the room that is going to make the first, like you say, major point or leave the first major impression. Indeed. And therefore, you know, thinking about connections, the connectors between the rooms is really important. So a connector between a room might be as simple as the word, but, you know, um, so, so coming back to the story of, um, of the calming of the storm, they got into the boat, they were moving towards the other side, but a great storm arose. So, so the word, but is the hallway, you know, uh, nothing more than that. Or you might be, you know, talking about, you know, say we talked about Job earlier, we're talking about the book of Job, talking about everything sitting pretty for Job. But of course, Life is not always like that, is it? You use question, the question is a connector. And then the next room is the, the first piece of news about the disasters that have struck his life. So yeah, connectors can be quite brief, but they need to be quite clear. As I say, that they're like the turn, the turn signs in a, in a stately home. 
that guide us from room to room. So people can see them clearly, but they don't. They, you don't need to spend huge amounts of time on them. But uh, yeah, I always remember one person saying, "Be go easy in the turns," because it's those points in the message where you can often lose people because they think, "Which room am I in now? Are we are we still in the boat or are we back on the shore?" I know, I know, that's right. And so it needs to be subtle, but it needs to be deliberate and intentional so that you don't... Uh, we do this process whenever someone preaches, we listen to their sermon and feedback on them, and often I'll say, I just got a bit lost. And what I mean is you need to focus on your turns between points because that's important. But using the story of the coming of the the, the storm in Mark's Gospel, which, by the way, I felt I need to confess this, John, I was recently talking with someone and we had one of those classic Christian conversations where I said, which is your favourite gospel? Um, your favourite gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John? And uh, I have to be honest and say, I said to my friend, I don't know which my favourite is, but I can tell you what my least favourite is. And it was Mark. And yet reading your book has restored, made me feel a bit guilty because you think you use Mark's gospel a lot and you've shown how full of genius it is. I feel like I need to apologise to Mark because one day I'm going to meet him in the new creation. I'm going to have to say, I dissed your book, but it's really good, actually. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a series for, for life in the future then. <laughs> um, you, you talk in this this parable, this um, occasion of the coming of the storm, the different rooms. Um, that as a preacher, you could consider constructing a sermon using these rooms. Yeah. You've got the relaxation room before the storm, and you've got the panic room when the storm's hitting, the escape yeah. room, Jesus gets them out, yeah. the reassessment room, and the puzzle room. Talk to me about some of those different rooms and how you, one could can, yeah. can create a sermon on that. Yeah. Well, I think that you know what what I discern in in looking at uh, at that story is that is that the disciples um, have these you know contrasting emotions throughout the story. Um, you know I, I, we have a saying in East Anglia um, about the weather that um, too nice, too early, um, and and that's what happened here. You know it it just seemed like a really nice idea to go on a boat trip. Um, to get away from the crowd, to have a rest. And, and they were obviously relieved and happy, and Jesus was so relieved that he went to sleep um, immediately. Um, but then, obviously, the mood changes. And the mood changes, you know, again, obviously, when, when Jesus um, continues to be asleep in the storm, and, and they become not just afraid, but angry, as they kind of say, you know, don't you care about us, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and then obviously when he stands up and, and there is calm. But then there's the surprising thing about the sermon, and I think sometimes people don't miss this, they often miss this, is that, is that after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples, verse 51, 41 rather, are more afraid than they were in the storm. Because they've, they've suddenly seen that Jesus, who, I, when I preach on this, I can say that, you know, at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus was big. He'd done some great things in his ministry. That during the storm, he appeared to be smaller. And they, and they said, you know, you don't care. And when he calmed the storm, he became bigger than he had done over before. But then he became bigger again because they realized that this was someone that was just beyond the categories. Who is this? That even, the, you know, even the winds and the waves obey him. Um. And kind of moving people through those emotional rooms so that they recognize that um, they need to come to a point where where they can recognize that that they need to to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and and that 
um, they can do that as, as they're led through that particular process. So I, I think that could be a good, a good basis for a sermon because, you know, it's coming back to what we said when we looked at Job um, when we were doing training on Job um, about orientation, disorientation, um, reorientation, um, that, that God um, is at work in our world and in our lives. And that sometimes, you know, people suddenly find that their whole world is turned upside down and it disorientates them. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, the child, the baby who has experienced no pain. And then one day they, they're taken by their parents to, to, to the doctors. Uh, the child is full of smiles. And then the person in the white coat takes out a sharp um, needle and gives them an inoculation and, for, and, and they, they cry and they look at their parents and they're puzzled because they just don't kind of understand this. And the disciples were in that situation. Superb. I mean, you, you then talk about furnishing the rooms with pictures and um, the idea of applications. But actually, I like it. You, you talk about implications instead of applications. And we could talk about that. But I want to come on to talk about the conclusion, actually, because along with the introduction, you said the concluding words, finishing well, is really important. There's a beautiful quote here from Charles Swindle. Our brother needs no introduction, but boy, does he need a conclusion. <laughs> Talk to us about the importance of conclusions and how to do that well. Well, I would say that this is the area that I've always found most difficult. Um, I think my wife, who is probably more of an expert on preaching than I am, um, and if I've learned anything about preaching, certainly my inadequacies, I've learned them from her because she is, she's obviously heard nearly all of my sermons. So, you know, she she's a good, she's kind of a good judge. You know, she often says, you know, that you don't make your intentions clear which I think is the definition of the, the very worst kind of boyfriend, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't make your intentions clear always um, in the conclusion. I try to work on this. And I, I, so, so I, I kind of sometimes would, would, would kind of say, well, okay, let's just pause for a moment and think through what are the implications of this for tomorrow morning? Well, one question I sometimes ask, what are you doing at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning? And what in this sermon might speak to that situation? You know, you might be having an interview. You might be having a tricky meeting with a boss or an employee. You know, you might have a, a really important form to fill in. You might have an appointment or an operation. And, and just thinking about that and thinking about the implications of a biblical passage for that situation. But sometimes, of course, a conclusion is bringing us to a point where we encounter God and we simply say, wow. That can be the conclusion. But I think that it's probably important to prepare what you're going to say at the end, not, not, not always leave it to the moment, because sometimes the moment will, uh, will kind of run away from you. And if you, if you don't know what you're going to say or do at the end, particularly if you want to do something, you know, for example, if you, if you kind of feel that this would be an appropriate time to ask people to receive prayer or to call people to be baptised or to believe. Um, I think you need to think that through and think about what you're going to do. I mean, if, if you want to offer a booklet or, or you want, you know, if, if you're going to invite people to a course, you know, then make sure that, you know, there's, there's someone around with, with those kind of invitations and, um, and a sheet that they can sign people up, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, thinking through, coming back to the idea, what's the word saying? What's the word doing? What do you want the word to do will shape how you shape the conclusion yeah that's really helpful i like what uh, you say elsewhere as well in relation to something else but you said um in every congregation 
you, you must remember that there's in it's the exact phrasing I can't remember, but when you preach, there is always at least one broken heart in the congregation. Yeah. And thinking about how what you're saying is going to be heard and felt and received and responded to by a broken heart, uh, yeah. as much as a stubborn heart or a hard heart, I think is really helpful, which points to the fact that preaching isn't an art form in communication alone. It's it's actually the job of a pastor, a shepherd who knows the people yeah. that he's speaking to, which is why the the role of preaching is so closely linked in the New Testament, at least to the office of eldership and pastoral ministry. Um, John, just as we come into land, I'm going to we'll mention the conference that we're involved with yeah. dead preacher society taking place in just a few weeks time you can still book your tickets but john just as we're coming into land what um kind of just passing final concluding conclude well as you say concluding comments would you want to pass on as a preacher and as a pastor to people i think that the key thing about about preaching is that we learn to to read well scripture to know god to know ourselves to know our congregations. I think some people preach to the congregation they wish they had rather than the congregation they actually do have. Um, and they get frustrated that people don't respond, but that they're not being fed with, with what, they, what, what they need. So I think an awareness, awareness of, of who God is, who we are, who the people we're talking to are, and a, a deep reading of God's word that allows God's word to read us and open up our lives so that we can, you know, proclaim it in such a way that people's eyes, ears and hearts are opened to God.